0: everyone, this is Katherine Adams and Elizabeth Wallace, and you're listening to Binary System Podcast number 319. And tonight we're recapping welcome to Night Vale number 209, the black coat. Plus, after the recap, we have to talk about some nerd news that is especially important to us. But first, the Night Vale recap. And we started out this by having a bit of a debate about whether or not there was a character that had a black coat or maybe someone who had a gold coat. Well, it turns out we were thinking of the man in the tan jacket, which I think came mm-hmm. from episode 14 and 14. showed up in the Nightvale novel. That is not what this episode is about. No, This episode is about the distant prince, who I know has been mentioned before. I have no idea which episodes. I could have looked that up, but I certainly didn't. Uh, Diane Creighton saw him first, and it's this, she didn't see him exactly. She basically saw the minions and the harbingers. Um, If you see him, it's a pretty terrifying experience, but she just saw his sort of people she saw a bit of the crooked path and the narrow place and basically closed her eyes and just screamed the entire rest of the way home which cecil said was a good thing because if she had seen the distant prince i love that how they described it it would have resulted in just gasps thick with blood yeah this by the way this is a very dark episode yeah it's a really um kind of unpleasant in places but cecil says you know more on that soon or never wouldn't that be great but probably more soon. So he got a strange phone call today, but he had to qualify. He gets a lot of strange phone calls. Like he gets his breakfast strange phone call, which is usually a lot of chanting or maybe screams, and then his mm-hmm. lunch strange phone call, which is his uh, aunt Ruby telling him all about his family members. Except he doesn't have an aunt Ruby, and everybody she's talking about is already dead. And then uh-huh. he gets a nighttime phone call. What was the nighttime phone call? Do you remember? Oh, that was these people who are saying something about tax. I don't know, like IRS type of stuff. He's not buying any of it. He just hangs up the phone on them. But this call was in the middle of the night, and it was from Kareem. And he thinks it's from the Kareem who says that Night doesn't exist, and that he actually came from the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and... I can't remember. He just said that he's spoken with somebody that is really interested in Night Vale and who'll be coming soon. And was like, oh, okay, Kareem, we'll see if who gets here, your strange people or these IRS folks. <laughs> We go from that to Cecil telling us very quickly he's got a surprise for Carlos in the works because it's almost the 10-year anniversary of Carlos' first arriving in town, which is, of course, that's real-world information. It's almost the 10-year anniversary of Nightvale. In fact, at the time that this episode drops, the 10-year anniversary was yesterday, June 15th. Oh, that's <laughs> so freaking typical for us. Happy anniversary, Nightvale. Like a week late. Yay. But anyway, um, yeah, so Cecil sees, you know, just, don't tell him, but also he's so excited. Uh, there was another sighting of the distant prince, and this time it was Diane Creighton's son, Josh. And there's this whole long tangent about the fact that Josh had met up with his mom to have lunch with her, and he feels kind of guilty because he didn't tell her once again that he's thinking about dropping out of college to become an actor because, you know, he's a shapeshifter, so he can be anything. But he sees what could possibly be the court of the distant prince, and he feels like he's going to throw up. So he turns himself into this rushing brook filled with uh, trout, I think, which is a form that he finds soothing and also cannot throw up, which I figured you would probably appreciate. Yes, I do appreciate that, yes. (laughs) So he could sense the distant prince. He couldn't see him, but it was like his... His senses were kind of weird, like he could hear him in his teeth. God, very, very creepy. We go from this to Cecil. Cecil knows on some level that he once walked the crooked path and was in the narrow place, but he can't remember any of it. And I thought maybe he was making a reference to something in the past, but I don't think he was. He's just having these memories. He doesn't know what to do with them, except he knows that he wore a black coat and never existed. And no, he has no idea what that means. Right. He repeats that phrase a couple of times. So, Uh, Next up, we had a word from our sponsor, Lipton Iced Tea, and... Yeah, it starts talking about this whole story about some kids way back in the past outside of London who found this skull in a tree. And then suddenly there's all this graffiti over and over again that just says, who put Bella in the witch elm? Lipton iced tea. Who put Bella in the witch elm? <laughs> I just, I never get tired of the sponsors. They always do such a great job. And that really. one, I want to see somebody do some fan art of, like, the Lipton iced Tea logo oh, and the right yes. colors and everything, but just with that phrase, who put Bella in the witch elm? Oh, man. If there's anything like a, like a glass of iced tea, and if you look very, very closely at the ice cubes, they're actually little skulls. Ooh, ooh yeah. So, fan artists, mm-hmm. get on that. Mm-hmm. So we go right from there to Cecil. He's very, very confused. He is right now on the crooked path. One minute he was in the booth, now he's on the crooked path. He's heading into the narrow place. He sees something coming out of the darkness, and it's terrifying him. But as a journalist, he feels like he has to go and see exactly what it is. But first, we have a correction. Uh, Hendrik Narralsby. It was a story about him, about how he used to live in another place, but he was hearing these radio broadcasts about a place called Nightvale and he gets really confused and he goes driving and he finds himself in Nightvale and finds a house that's very familiar because he's been dreaming about it since he was 4 and he goes inside and everything's been set up exactly the way he needs it even with the dog-eared book that he was reading sitting by the nightstand so he's become a very valued member of the community. The correction, none of that happened and Cecil made it all up. Next, God, we go from there to a word from Roaring Rapids brand showerheads, and they are very proud of their achievements. They have made a superior product that has excellent water pressure, and sure, it has flayed a lot of people alive. And sure, there's been some recalls, and sure, they're all facing a lot of prison time. But. They are still very, very proud of their achievements. And Cecil says, wow, it's a good thing that Carlos and I didn't ever open that showerhead that Steve Carlsberg got us as a present. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't that we didn't want to. It's just, it's we're not very, you know, crafty people. And it seemed like installing a showerhead was going to be kind of a lot of work. So guess we dodged a bullet. Like, <laughs> oh my God. Just geez. like anything in Night Vale is dangerous. It's dangerous yeah. just to be in Night Vale and turn on your friggin' shower. Oh my God. So we're back to Cecil being on the crooked path, and he sees the thing that's moving. He goes towards it. It's this shambling, stumbling figure, and it comes towards him, and it falls into his arms, and it's himself. He has actually met his double, and no, it's not Kevin. Yeah, and his double looks emaciated and like he's Mm. been gone for years and wandering around in a daze. So Cecil starts to help himself, Um, But before we find out where they're going to, we go take a look at the weather, because why not? And the weather this time was Ultimatum by LEPF. I would say electronic, little bit of sort of soft rock punk type of thing, I guess. Yeah, the background notes for it sounded a little hallucinogenic in the beginning, and then I completely forgot to pay attention because it reminded me of... uh, the singer from Twin Peaks. And I guess everyone's probably seen the news that she passed away recently, which is a real shame. And I kind of feel like I want to go watch the Twin Peak episodes where she was in. Yeah, me too. So we come back from the weather and Cecil says he... followed himself home and he was asking himself a lot of questions and there was no answer. And he said he was wearing a black coat and had never existed and points out that the distant prince wore a golden coat and has always existed. And no, we don't know what any of that means. But we do start to see that the other Cecil is disappearing and not like Mm -hmm. fading out, but like parts of him are disappearing, like his nose disappears. And a little bit later on, he like uh, tries to, you know, Cecil helps him back into the radio station and he sits down and he licks his one remaining lip with the half of the tongue that's still left, and his mm-hmm. leg has started disappearing up into his torso. So just about as disturbing as you can make a disappearance. Even more than that, um that disappearance thing in Looper where the guy just starts I was losing that body the parts. Whole time. <laughs> oh my god, I love that scene. Even if it technically doesn't make logical sense with time travel and everything, I adore that scene. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yeah, the Version of himself, you know, sits in the chair and is like looking around at the radio station, like in wonder, like he's an exile returned. And he just sort of rasps out the word traffic. And then he says, community calendar. And then he suddenly gets terribly alert and he looks at Cecil and he goes, Carlos. And Cecil reassures him and says, it's fine, it's fine, Carlos is fine, Carlos is safe. And the shambling version of himself just heaves this deep sigh of relief and leans back and leans back and leans back until he disappears completely. And that's pretty much the end of the episode, other than the fact that Cecil knows that we will be seeing more of the crooked path and the narrow place and that the distant prince is nearby. Mm -mm, Yeah, so really... A very very creepy episode this time the whole disappearing thing got to me but just the idea like Cecil had said that he felt very bad for this version of himself that had been stuck in the narrow place but he was terribly glad that it wasn't himself and I'm like I don't know time travel is this a vision of himself in the future I sure as hell hope not I hope not too but I guess we'll see so on to uh, slightly cheerier news sort of bittersweet in places um They finally released, and I, of course, there were news articles out, and even with all the PR articles that I get for the website, I had no idea this was happening. The final season of Peaky Blinders dropped on Netflix. And believe it or not, we have both actually watched the first episode, which is really good Mm -hmm. for us. Yeah. Spoiler warnings, obviously, for the first episode. If you haven't watched it, this is all we're going to talk about this week for the most part, so you can just skip ahead. Uh, We had been wondering, because Helen McCrory who played Aunt Paul. She passed away after the filming of the previous season. And we were wondering, she was just so important to the story and they were going to continue with the series. So we didn't know how were they going to resolve that? And wow, they resolved it really fast. Yeah, cuz Tommy you ended the last season with him screaming and pointing a gun at his forehead cuz he's obviously mm-hmm. just done and I watched the recap to make sure I'd gotten everything, and at the end of the recap that they had, it fades to black, and then you hear a click. And it turns out Arthur had pulled the bullets out of his gun and Lizzie comes in dressed in her rather stunning silk night dress, I think, um, Mm -hmm. walking across the mud and she just calls him a coward for the fact that he was going to leave his family without a goodbye and she just drops bullets down into the mud and storms away. So he goes back to the office. And the phone's ringing. And he had seen a truck with a white flag going by. So on the phone is a woman from Ireland. And he'd been avoiding working with her, I believe. But she's pretty much made it very clear he is going to do exactly what they tell him. And they have taken out three crutches, I guess they said, or at least one of them was a crutch, But we knew that the sharpshooter that they had hired to kill the fascist politician, Uh we knew that that guy had gotten killed. Mm -hmm. And so you see a quick flash, like he's, Tommy's opening the shrouds on the bodies We don't see the bodies themselves, but we see quick flashes of when we had last seen them. Mm -hmm. And so you see the sharpshooter, and then he goes to the next one, and it's Amarabo Gold, who had been Paul's fiancé, I guess, Mm -hmm. and you see a quick flash of him the last time we'd seen him, so we know that's who the second body is. And then we see the third body, and he opens it up, and he is just destroyed. And you see a quick flash to a portrait, and it's of Paul. Yep. And that's it. Yep. And there's and that's, there's no dialogue after that. It's just him being distraught. And you see her son lighting the funeral pyre. And she's in a gypsy cart, I think. And it's filled mm-hmm. with, I guess, her treasures and that portrait. Was that, that wasn't the portrait that the the painter did? I don't think so because, but it might, maybe he did another one because we know that she destroyed that one because she thought maybe he had been sent to infiltrate or whatever. And he totally wasn't. But we never found out what happened to him, and it's entirely possible that maybe he painted her another painting. I don't know because it was as far as I know it was the dress that she had been wearing for that portrait. yeah, it was a much smaller like instead of like a full body portrait mm-hmm. it was just a head and shoulders, but it was just and then you know, just the the camera moving across these treasures and pulling back from the painting you see just a hint of the shroud from where she's buried and it's it's a quick flash of all of the different main characters who knew her standing around the funeral pyre. And I really want to think that was also the actors saying goodbye to Helen McCrory. Oh, it was, I mean, they were going to address it one way or the other. I just, I was really very pleasantly surprised that they didn't try to show the body. You know, there was no like body double. They didn't have like a a dummy or whatever you saw very little of the actual body and I think when it's the case of like an actual like a person has actually died that seems like the best way to go you don't you don't want to imply that for the sake of the family for crying out loud I, and I was so afraid they were going to do a cgi like they did Me with too. um you never watched the sopranos did you no, I did not. Yeah, because his that. the the um, actress who played his mother passed away, and so they like CGI'd her reaction shots from another scene or whatever, and had him oh, confronting dear. her as a sort of just before she dies or something. I guess I'm like, and it was really obvious that that was what they did, and I didn't yeah. want them to do any of that. And it's just it's such a tragic situation. I think um, Cillian Murphy said it in, in an interview about the sixth season that they had planned a big storyline for Paul. But they had to delay filming because of COVID. So wow. uh, had all this stuff that they didn't get a chance to do. And I'm sure everybody's just really, I mean, there's nothing good about the situation. But I think no. if you have to handle that and give the character herself an out, that's this is probably the classiest way to do it, even yeah, though agreed. it's really wretched for Tommy because the Irish woman on the phone was telling her, this is someone that you leaned on, and I am taking that away, and you will know to not, I don't know, I think he just, she she thinks that he's overestimating his abilities, and she wanted right. to make sure that he shouldn't do that. Oh, God. And then so the title card comes in four years later. I'm like, oh, my goodness, we made a jump. Holy crap. I like a good time jump. I and jump. I'll yep. tell you why. It's because sometimes the story can get a little bogged down. And I yep. want to just, let's leap forward to when the big developments are happening. And that's exactly what we do. We see uh, Tommy is in Newfoundland, I think. And um, it's a, is it New? I can't remember. Did he go straight to the bar scene? Yeah, and it, I think that was what it was when he was... Okay, uh, uh, but it was, an, it was like a, a subset of Ireland, wasn't it? It was an island. Oh, God. <laughs> Hang on a second. You know what? I'm going to check this out, because I'm, yep. I'm sure somebody's got a, uh, a recap. Let me see. Oh, good, the decider. That's a good one. I tend to go there for my recaps a lot. Oh, I need to do that, too. Okay. It was Newfoundland, French territory. Damn it, sorry. (laughs) I think we should keep all this in, damn it. I think we should as well, yes. (laughs) So yes, they're in Newfoundland, which is this very, very, very gritty, grungy town that apparently used to make their money running liquor. But they're all kind of bitter because I think the Peaky Blinders put them all out of business by running their own liquor. And then... He Tommy goes into this bar and he sits down and he orders water. And the bartender kind of wants him to go to the upstairs room where he was gonna be having a meeting. We had reserved a room later on, and Tommy's not moving. And then somebody else slaps a newspaper down in front of him. And I loved how they did this. It was a newspaper in French, but you saw the headline and then you saw the subtitles translating the headline but they were kind of like lined up at the same angle as the paper so a black day and it's the end of prohibition so now nobody gets to make any money so that's right everybody's pissed, and they're gonna try to take it out on tommy and that goes about as well as you'd expect because he is a peaky blinder and he does have that razor blade in his hat. Yes, he does, and he like slashes up a couple of people and he shoots. God, that was it was a pigeon. Yeah, because the um, the bartender had said that they were trying to clean up the upstairs room because some vandal had broken a window and pigeons had gotten in and they were having mm-hmm. to clean up the mess. So he's like slashing some people. Somebody pulls out a big knife, so he pulls out a gun and says no. And then a pigeon comes by and he just shoots it and kills it dead. <laughs> oh my. God. God. <laughs> just don't mess with Tommy. No. Just don't mess with no. him. No, and he tells everybody that four years ago he stopped drinking and he said it made him a calmer person. So uh, oh geez, oh geez. So finally he goes up to the meeting room. I'm sure the bartender is like, oh God, just go away. Jesus. He gets up there and a bunch of thugs arrive that he's doing business with. And it's Aunt Paul's son. Michael. Michael's up. Yeah. And. Michael had sworn at the funeral that one day he would he would kill Tommy. I mean, I think he might have said something like, "I'll pay him back, I'll take him down." He's, he swore to kill Tommy because he blames Tommy for Aunt Paul's death. So Michael's wife, um, she mm-hmm. her uncle is like a big. I don't know mafia boss, I guess in, uh, I in Boston? Boston, highly uh, highly connected to people in Boston, including being connected very high up in government. Apparently, uh, yeah, like having meetings with the president, kind of connected. So Tommy, I think he's still trying to get rid of the opium that he had to keep in storage in his docks from last season. I mean, this I isn't think, yeah. this isn't a new shipment. This is still the same opium from. So he he wants. Michael's uh, wife's uncle to do business with him. And I don't think Michael's really interested, but Tommy gives him a big satchel full of opium anyway, and they try to intimidate him. And he you know, does the Tommy thing and intimidates them the hell back and then leaves. Yep. And then immediately goes to an office and makes a phone call and totally rats out Michael and just telling the police officers, yeah, it's a concerned citizen and you're going to look for this guy and he's carrying a briefcase and has a lot of opium in it. Yeah. My name is like Jones or something. <laughs> Sorry. There was a card that just went by during that, but we'll just ignore that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, his plan all along I mean, I guess he does want to do business, but his plan was all along to just make sure that Michael took the fall for it. Yeah, and Michael ends up in jail, and his wife is pissed off, um, and she doesn't know why he's doing business with Tommy, and I think Michael's whole idea is getting close to Tommy is how he can finally get his revenge, which if you knew Tommy, I think that would you would know that was a bad idea. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Tommy goes to visit Michael's wife, and Michael's wife tells him, no, my uncle's not going to do business with you. He's meeting with the president on a daily basis, and he's going to be keeping his nose clean, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with opium. And then Tommy threatens to instead do business with the Jewish gangs in yep. Boston, which apparently will start a great big war between mm-hmm. the, the Jewish gangs and whoever it is that... um. Uh, uh, Michael's wife what is Michael's wife name I mean oh, I, I don't even know it's on. the same actress who was in the uh, the Queen's Gambit I'm I'm looking up here hang on Gina Gina Yeah, Gina. Who is always fun to watch. I love her scenes. And she seems very happy with the fact that prohibition is done and now she can drink. But, you know, Tommy at one point asked her if he can smoke. And she's like, if it's legal, it's fine. So I think that's that's why she, uh, uh, another reason why they're just not having anything to do with this opium. But he, in addition to threatening her uncle with selling to the Jewish gangs, he also admits to her that he was the person that ratted Michael out because he wanted to put her uncle in a dilemma. Does he get somebody out of jail who was just caught smuggling opium, or does he leave him in there to rot when Gina happens to be his favorite niece? Right. Man, and this whole, like, she started out this conversation being a little brat, basically, and just lording everything over Tommy and letting him know that she wasn't scared of him at all. And by the end of the conversation, her tone had definitely changed. Changed because yeah. she has been outmaneuvered in a big way. Yeah. We were, Nathan and I were watching that and Nathan said that conversation didn't go the way she was expecting it would. Oh, it did not. Now we take a quick flip back to the family back over in England. Uh, it's so it's a little before Christmas because Lizzie and the kids are going to go and meet Tommy out in Boston. They're going to take a steamship cruise line, whatever. Uh, so they're kind of celebrating Christmas early with the family that they're going to stay. And, of course, Arthur was supposed to play Father Christmas. I thought Arthur was drunk. No, no, Arthur's on opium. Yeah. And absolutely just like this close to being completely passed out. And it's just, I mean, he is, he's been like that ever since Paul yeah, left, and left, died, whatever. Yeah, and Lizzie and Ada talk. And, you know, Lizzie is... I think for four years, Tommy's basically been a zombie. So she's not really looking forward to any kind of happy reunion with Tommy. I mean, she still wants to go. I mean, I feel so yeah. bad for Lizzie because you, she is head over heels for Tommy and she knows yes. how bad of an idea that is. And she's yep. still sticking by him. But an Ada meanwhile is like, she knows Arthur would never have gotten as bad as he is if Paul had still been around. And right. I thought that was really cool when she walks into the kitchen where he's slumped over in a opium daze, and you only see her in silhouette. And for some reason, the way her silhouette looked, it looked like Paul. It really did look like Helen McCrory. And I have to think that was deliberate. That this is yeah. kind of passing the torch, Paul's responsibilities onto Ada, whether she wants them or not, basically. Yeah. She and she definitely doesn't, because later on in the whole show. There's a phone call. One of the nieces and nephews, I cannot remember which one, um, he's standing there and asking her while the phone's ringing, she's like, aren't you going to answer that? And she says, no, I don't work for Tommy anymore. And he said, maybe it can be important. She said, well, that's why I'm not answering it. And he looks like he wants to answer it. So she finally does. And she's immediately like, oh, fuck. And somebody is called to let her know that Arthur is passed out in an opium den, And she just marches in there, sees him, rips open a shirt and starts drawing on him and then turns to the people who run the opium den and says this is arthur shelby tommy shelby says to not sell arthur any more opium or he will write your name on your chest with a bayonet and she walks out and on arthur's chest is written arthur shelby because i uh, it's like nobody's going to want to touch him now because my god if Tommy Shelby's brother dies in an opium den. Everybody who works there will be murdered. Yes, yeah. So I think she... But that's a pretty good lateral move, I think, to that solve the... Know. If she can't convince Arthur to um, behave himself, well, she'll just make it really harder for him to misbehave. Yeah, that's about all you can do at this point. Now, from there... We go back to the hotel room, I guess, where Tommy's staying. I didn't realize that's where we were going first because there's a woman in the bed. And I'm like, oh, who's this? Oh, it's Tommy's room. Oh, man, Tommy. He's sleeping with a prostitute. I mean, they make that really obvious because she gets up while he's on the phone with Lizzie and she very sultrily wanders over and picks up the handful of money on the table and leaves. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Tommy um, talking with Lizzie and Lizzie tells him that their daughter... Uh, was running a bad fever. And the doctor thinks it's the flu, so they can't get on the boat to go see him. And she's really sorry about it. And Tommy's like trying to comfort her. And it's just that awful dichotomy of, I'm sure he wants to see his daughter again. He's probably not all that fussed that he's not going to see Lizzie again, because Mm -hmm. I think Lizzie's just convenient at this point. Oh, it's so sad. I wonder, I mean, Lizzie knows what a bad idea it is to be with Tommy. Do you suppose she knows about the prostitutes? I guess. I mean, she would have to suspect. Yes. Anyway, but then she's just kind of, Well, you know, there's some sort of sweet moments. I mean, he does try in his way to be kind to her, I suppose, which is, it's one of those things. He tries to be kind to her by not letting her know that there's a prostitute in the bed because he wouldn't want to hurt her feelings. That's kind. But <laughs> yes. She lets him know just sort of randomly that their daughter was so delirious that she was saying words in gypsy language that the neighboring kids have been teaching her. And then she tells him some of the words and he freaks the hell out. And he tells her, don't let her go play by the river. Don't let her ride any horses. Tell Johnny Dogs, his gypsy second in command everything that you heard her say and he just I mean he is he is really terrified that something is going to happen but we don't know if he's terrified of somebody coming to him or coming to his daughter we don't know what those words mean that Lizzie was telling him so yeah. yeah and he's all of the goodwill that he built up with Lizzie while talking with her is completely wiped out as he's screaming at her yeah and she says something oh this gypsy shit and now he is very superstitious so when he gets off the phone with Lizzie, the lights flicker. And then he's talking to Paul because he definitely believes that Paul is there. But it took until after the episode was over. So I don't know if the gypsy words are like a curse and he's worried about like gypsy magic coming together, which he totally believes in that, or I wonder if somebody said something in her hearing and that's what she was repeating. And it's like, you know, he's obviously he's infiltrated various groups around and, and betrayed people and whatever. I'm worried now that maybe there's somebody in their group that's betraying them, and that's what he heard. Yeah, I don't yeah. know, because there's lots of betrayals going on, and we still don't know who ratted Tommy and his plan to have mostly assassinated. Because nope. nope. somebody in the group told somebody, and yeah, it's it's going to be interesting watching this play out over the next five episodes. But the last thing we see in the episode is him going to visit Michael, and Michael at this point knows that Tommy ratted him out. But I, I think did he just want to taunt him, or did he just want to let him know that they're still going to do business, and Michael's not going to have any say in it? And he like tells the guy that the police officers, you know, in the prison area where they're talking is going to look after him. And he tells Michael, tells him, I don't need your thugs to look after me. You know, Gina's uncle is going to spring me out. And Tommy's like, Nope. Here's a letter from the president telling Gina's uncle that you need to stay in prison for a little while until. The newspapers lose interest. Oh, Grant. Yep. yep. I think one of the reasons, because Tommy immediately told Lizzie that he's coming back. I mean, there was this whole plan he was going to be staying in Boston, handling all this stuff. And now that his daughter's sick and saying these terrible words that we don't know what they mean, he's like, I'm getting on the next train or train pff, boat back. And Michael accuses him of like, coming into town, creating problems, and just leaving like a coward. So I think that might have been part of why Tommy came by to talk to him. He's like, I'm not, I'm not a coward. I'm leaving on purpose. Also, Gina's uncle is going over to England as well. And he's hired tickets for himself, his wife, his mistress, somebody else I can't remember, and Gina. So he told Michael that Gina was going over to England and Tommy would be sure to show her all the sights, and Michael freaks out. Yeah, and that's where we leave the episode. So I'm not even sure how much of this is Tommy setting up a plan, how much of this is Tommy just rubbing Michael's face in it because he's kind of mad at Michael because Michael came back from America last season and just turned into a total shit. So Yeah, yeah, and then I'm sure it hasn't been any better. I know Tommy was saying something when he was talking to Michael about, you know, and then I'll come back, and then we'll do our business, and then we'll go our separate directions, right? And I'm thinking, there's no way Tommy believes that. He knows that Michael wants to kill him. Yeah, and, and he knows that Michael wants to kill him, but Tommy also knows people better than they think they do. He may know that Michael isn't capable of going through with it. I don't know. I don't know. Paul, though, told Tommy at the end of last season that there will be a war, and one of you will die but she couldn't see who it was gonna be. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, Tommy knows that Michael is gunning for him and he always trusted what Paul told him. So yeah, that's a lot in one episode. One episode, one oh, one amazing. normal length episode. This was not a double length episode, so they they packed a bunch in there. It was so nice to see everybody again, but oh, and of course the very final title cards said something like dedicated to the memory of Helen McCrory. Helen yeah. McCrory, oh. uh, Helen McCrory OBE. I did not mm-hmm. realize that she had that title. That's that's kind of either. awesome. Yeah. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Now I kind of want to watch um, uh, the episodes that she was in of uh, Penny Dreadful I remember those being kind of interesting oh, Yeah, oh yeah, she was so bad <laughs> she was <laughs> such a baddie oh my goodness, that was fun like a scene of her walking through a field at one point, because she's going to try and make sure that people go after this one witch and she's just walking through a field just gently touching cows and the cows all collapse, just die as she walks <laughs> past them, I'm like, oh dear lord Anything <laughs> <laughs> you think of anything else? I was. I just watching Arcane, but I bet you haven't finished. Watching I haven't Arcane. finished watching, and I I started watching the second episode of Umbrella Academy, and oh. I haven't even finished watching the second episode. Oh, I'm so no, bad. That's fine. Yeah. I've watched a few more episodes of Stranger Things, but I don't know if we need to talk about that. Since, you know, I actually talked with a couple of friends of ours. We had a, a cookout this afternoon and they mentioned about Stranger Things and yeah, they said the season, the first episode was violent. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. All this is going to go into the podcast. Of course it is. We're not going to cut this out yet. No, no, yet. no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Body horror like you wouldn't believe. There's been at least three times when you see something, you're like, oh my God, that's so violent. But not like... I mean, like, gore, but not gore that you can't handle. You oh, okay, it's, like, it's we're, we're capable of handling this, but it is it pushes it a bit. Well, <laughs> it's pretty intense. Yeah, and they also said, because I said I hadn't finished watching season three, and they said season three is fine, but it's kind of like if you put in an action movie and you fast-forward past everything so you could just watch the fights, that's kind of what you need to do with season three. Like, the last yeah. episode, they thought the last fight, the big battle was really cool, but otherwise oh, they definitely. thought season three was sort of forgettable. And there's this thing with, whatever, the kid with the Lisp, whose name I can't remember, I'm sorry, and he has a girlfriend who's like, he met her at summer camp, I suppose, mm-hmm. and they actually have a scene, and this, I know we mentioned it on the podcast where I said there was a scene that was unforgivably cheesy well he hadn't called her for a while and her feelings were hurt and they're on the phone together and she says I won't talk to you unless you do what I want you to do and he said no I can't do that there's other people listening she said no you have to they sing the song to the never-ending story together oh my it's so hard to watch it's really (laughs) dear (laughs) I know if you get to that just go ahead and start fast forwarding it is exactly as awkward and cringy as you would think it is so oh my god but anyway Um, yeah so far that hasn't been anything like that there's there's actually there was a one good scene at one point where everybody's freaking out because something happened and lots of scenes of everybody yelling at one person go 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 yeah and i still have two more episodes to watch of arcane i will finish that very soon and i you know that Umbrella Academy really is interesting. And I never quite am sure what tone they're going for. So it'll be fun to, to fall into that because now we're into like secret agents bitching about having to share a hotel room and an yep. apocalypse is on the way. And yet there's family drama and Klaus stealing valuable stuff from his dad's house and selling it for drugs. Yes. Yes. And, and while, while having an argument with his dead sibling the entire time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's so messed up because he talks to dead people, but it doesn't work if he's high. That's that's why he's always high. So it's, man, yeah, there's some interesting stuff coming up. I'm, you know, you'll, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm curious to see what they do with the third season. They left things in a really weird place at the end of the second season. Right, yeah, that's what I've been hearing, too. But I guess that will wrap us up for the week. So make sure to check out com for all the book reviews, the movie reviews, the comic book reviews, the fan art galleries, and the movie reviews. Um, so we had Hugh review Jurassic World Dominion, mm-hmm. and he gave it an A+. He said, you know, obviously the very first Jurassic movie ever is the best. Next in line is the first Jurassic World movie, and next comes this one. And I thought, oh, that's very nice. And then your friend David reviewed oh, it. Oh, boy. it's the Biggest piece of hot garbage. And I'm like, oh, my dear. Oh I, my I think he said all of the, like, the first four movies, including Jurassic World, he thought every everyone, you know, obviously the first one's perfect, and then all of the rest of them at least had some redeeming factor, but these latest two ones he is not happy with at all. Wow. I mean, he just, oh, I can't even get into all the ways that he said that it sucked, but he definitely thought that the return of the three original characters was not handled well it was just yeah. like they were playing almost cartoon versions of the characters they played in the first movie and that, that just makes so me want to cringe funny. right out of the movie theater i know because hugh thought that their return was handled brilliantly so and we've talked about it before i think i don't know if i don't think it made it on the podcast but he will bag on a movie if he thinks it's bad mm-hmm. he's not you know he doesn't like everything but he thought this one was great and fun and thought The Return of the Characters, and I'm like, I am so confused. But I do admit, David is exceptionally hard on movies, and Hugh is exceptionally forgiving, so the reality is somewhere in the middle on sure. Probably, true. yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. We'll put a link to both of those in this podcast <laughs> description. <laughs> judge for yourself. But anyway, all that and more, PixladyGeek.com. So, next week, we've got Laura Olympus. Uh-huh. Did you read the Fast Pass episode for today? Um, I... I think not. I think I'm waiting until we actually get to next week so that we can talk about it right after I've read it. Ah, uh, I was gonna wait. I was gonna, so I could read two of them at the same time. Yeah, that didn't happen. I read it. It's interesting. But okay. Yeah, one way or the other, we will talk to everybody in one week. Talk to y'all later. In modern day, this is kind of sort of related to that. I'm, You know what? I'm going to start that over. I don't really know what the hell I'm talking about. I have no clue.